0: Bienvenidos, señoras y señores, to episode 4 of La Yumacuana. Today's topic, the attack on the Moncada barracks, or el asalto al cuartel Moncada. Dun, dun, dun. On the 26th of July, 1953, at the ripe old age of 26, Fidel Castro led a group of rebels, including his brother, in an attack on the second largest military base in Cuba. The Moncada Fortress is this brightly yellow painted two-story edifice that's located on the outskirts of Santiago. Hey, Doc, can we go ahead and crank up that flux capacitor and set the era for 1950, please? My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious... Uh, yeah, Doc, sorry. This is PG-13. Thank you. So, 1950s, Havana was poppin'. This was the place you wanted to be. It was one of the most vibrant cities in Latin America at the time. Actually, before we get into the story, let's go ahead and get a deeper understanding of the characters involved, in particular, Batista and Castro. Ruben Fulencio Batista was born in 1901 on a sugar plantation. He was a son of a poor family. His father worked in the sugarcane fields, and his mother died when he was 14. He was supposedly one of the most representative of any prior ruler, claiming indigenous blood in his veins. They referred to him as El Indio. At the age of 19, he joined the army as a private, and by his 30s, he learned how to use a typewriter and became a military stenographer. He first rose to power as a part of an uprising called the Revolt of the Sergeants, and this overthrew the liberal Machado government. He then maintained control through a string of puppet presidents, until he himself was elected in 1940. So Batista would negotiate very lucrative relationships with the American mafia. No, like seriously, we're talking Salvador Lucky Luciano over here my cousin Vinny. So they controlled the businesses of drugs, gambling and prostitution in Havana. Batista would be richly rewarded for turning a blind eye and granting them complete control over the hotels and the casinos. Havana became a Latin Las Vegas. Some of the most famous musicians would be petitioned to perform, including Nat King Cole, Josephine Baker, and the Rat Pack, which of course included Frank Sinatra. Also for a price, Batista would award the U.S.-based multinational companies contracts to own businesses in Cuba. He was forced to relinquish power in 1944 because... Cuba's constitution prohibits immediate re-election. So he moved over to Daytona Beach, Florida, and then 4 years later he ran for president. When Mr. Sore Loser Sourpuss saw that he wasn't going to win, he returned to Cuba and he took power in a military coup in 1953. Junco is spelled C O J U P, but Junose is styling. The coup took place about 3 months before the upcoming elections that everybody was so eagerly awaiting. Also running in that election but for a different office, was a young energetic lawyer named, any guesses? Yes, Fidel Castro. Batista suspended the constitution as well as any right to strike. By the end of 1955, the Cuban people were even more frustrated than ever. There were many riots and demonstrations to which Batista would act even more ruthlessly and sent out a secret police to carry out torture and public executions. I mean, these guys didn't even fiend restraint. This unspeakable brutality of Batista's police force would serve as fuel for the revolution. This man was a genuinely and almost unanimously hated figure in Cuba. However, to the U.S., he was an agreeable dictator. He had sold himself as a strong man who would become the symbol to Roosevelt's good neighbor policy. Because the land and the organizations were mainly owned by Americans, 70%, Cuba posed no real threat and it was considered to be more of a U.S. economic asset. So... Let's take a step back. Batista was making cuts off the gambling and casino, the American investors. And when Cuba served as an ally to the US during World War II, they beefed up their army and every purchase made by the Cuban army, Batista would also get a cut. So this guy ended up being a multimillionaire. In the 1950s, Cuba may have had the highest average per capita income in Latin America, but that statistic only served to disguise the degree of inequality and the chronically high level of unemployment. To the outside, Cuba appeared to be a rich nation. However, internally, the majority of the Cuban people continue to struggle. It is interestingly ironic to me that someone like Batista, who came from such extreme poverty, that knew how much it sucked to be born and raised in that kind of environment, wound up being the protector for the bourgeoisie. Now we move on to Fidel Alejandro Castro, who was born on the 13th of August in 1926. His father, Ángel Castro, he wasn't even Cuban. He was a former Spanish soldier who came to Cuba to fight in the Spanish-American War. As the story goes, upon returning to Spain, the woman with whom he was supposed to marry and spend the rest of his life with, she was with another. So he comes back to Cuba to work in the sugarcane fields, like an economic migrant of sorts. He hustled. He observed, he networked, and learned the American game, and soon would make his fortune growing sugarcane with the US owned United Fruit Company, which was a very dominant economic and social force at the time. By 1910, he had 300 employees. Fidel's father was already married and had children. However, he had an affair with the housemaid, which was soon to be Fidel's mother, Lina Ruz Gonzalez. She was 15 at the time. Divorces were very taboo and complicated. So their illegitimate offspring would live amongst the sugarcane cutters just outside the estate. I had no idea about this, but Fidel in the literal definition of the word was a bastard son and would not bear his father's name until years later. Fidel's mother, Lina, was a poor yet ambitious country girl. She was described at, I love this part, as a Annie Oakley sharpshooter type. When the kids were out playing in the field and she called them for dinner, she would use Pavlov's conditioning. But instead of using a bell, she rang a shotgun. Dale, antes que se enfría la comida. Hurry before supper gets cold. Even though she herself was uneducated, she wanted the best education for their children that Ángel's money could buy. So Fidel and his siblings got to attend some pretty elite schools in Cuba. He played for the school's baseball team, basketball, and he ran track. In his yearbook, it was said of him, and I quote, he will fill the book of his life with brilliant pages, end quote. There was a small school on his father's sugar plantation, and there were five rows in one single room. Each row was a different level. At the age of four, being the youngest one in the class, Fidel sat front and center and absorbed everything. Earlier acts of rebellion, at the age of 12, he became upset with his father for the manner in which the sugarcane workers were being treated. So you have this child that comes from wealth, and even at this age, he could still see that the downtrodden deserved equanimity as well. In 1945, Fidel entered the University of Havana, which at the time was a hotbed of political activities. This is where the students would congregate to demonstrate and to give speeches. I remember as I was advancing up these concrete stairs, thinking if these steps could speak, the tales that they would tell. This generation of Fidel is marked one of terrible frustration. Cuba was supposedly ranked as one of the wealthiest nations and yet they just couldn't get it together politically. It was through studying Cuban history that Fidel came to the conclusion Cuba has never been in control over her own destiny. First, it was the Spaniard ruling for hundreds of years and now the U.S. In the Spanish-American War of 1898, which led to the Platt Amendment, that outlined several stipulations before U.S. troops would be withdrawn. Essentially, these terms gave U.S. dominance over Cuba to intervene at their discretion. As a matter of fact, When the Spaniards were defeated, the Cuban flag wasn't raised. The American one was. Fidel became a law student, and this was kind of a prerequisite to becoming a political leader, and that was one of his aspirations. Another one of his aspirations was to get married. So in October of 1948, he married Mirtha Diaz Blart, who was equally as beautiful as Fidel was handsome. She came from a well-to-do political family. They had a lavish honeymoon in New York. Her father would become the minister to Batista, and this will have a direct influence in Fidel's life. They had a son, Fidelito, and politics became Fidel's all-consuming passion. He graduated in 1950 as a doctor of law and began a legal practice focusing on helping the poor Cubans assert their rights. But apparently he wouldn't invoice them, so eventually the practice had to be closed. Right before the much-anticipated free democratic elections in Cuba, Fidel seized the moment, and campaigned for a congressional seat as a member of the Orthodox party, which called for a responsible government to put an end to corruption. However, Batista's military coup d'etat would piss on everyone's parade, shattering Cuba's dreams for democracy, as well as Fidel's aspirations. Pandora's box was now open. As Fidel sat on the steps of the university, his marriage on the rocks and without work, this moment birthed the revelation for the revolution. He filed a lawsuit against Batista's coup as being unconstitutional. The courts rejected his case as frivolous. It was after exhausting all legal options that Fidel realized Batista came to power through violence. Therefore, he must be taken out through violence. Thus, armed rebellion was the only way to put an end to this regime. Because people were protesting and doing demonstrations, but really, this would be squashed by the secret police. Fidel joined an armed group and found a natural place for himself within this culture. He practiced the art of organizing troops and rallying people together for a common cause. So then he devises the plan to attack the Moncada barracks. It had the objective of seizing the arsenal weapons that were inside, and if necessary, the rebels would retreat into the mountains and continue the fight using these weapons. It's important to note that there were other pseudo-revolutionary groups, and they were all vying for the same resources such as recruits, funds, and weapons. Even when they had money, sometimes there weren't any weapons on the black market. So weapons were probably the most scarce and sought after resource. The preparation for the attack went undetected on a small farm outside of Santiago. It was a bit improvised, but on the chosen day, the 26th of July, 1953, around 130 men and two women at dawn set out towards the barracks, deciding to do it during the week of carnival, banking on that Batista's soldiers would be hung over from the night before. To say that they were outnumbered four to one is a gross understatement. Now, they were trying to capitalize on the element of surprise. However, the defenders of the barracks had the superior position. They had the vantage point. Since the barracks had an above ground entrance, Fidel's rebel army would have to fight uphill. There were two other units that were concentrated on nearby targets. One, Raul's unit successfully seized the Palace of Justice, which was adjacent to the barracks. Two, Hospital Civil was also taken over, but this served more as a distraction. They both would have to withdraw after the plan collapsed. Upon arrival, Vidal's unit, who were actually at the barracks, unexpectedly encountered a military patrol who set off an alarm. Sálvase King Pueva, every man for himself, and woman. So they were outnumbered and outgunned. Castro's makeshift group were tired disarray, leaving more than half of their members behind. Both Fidel and Raúl managed to escape. These guys were like the Cuban Houdinis, but they were found soon after. The following is just one of a plethora of examples in which Fidel's life is serendipitously saved. If it's not somebody tipping him off or taking the wrong route, which in turn evaded his, his assassin, I mean, it's it's just crazy. In this particular circumstance, there was a lieutenant from the rural guard who had the wit to take him to the police station instead of back to the barracks, where he surely would have been tortured and killed along with the rest of the rebels. One of the two women involved painfully recollects while they were being detained her comrades would be taken into a room and later emerge with their heads bleeding, their faces almost unrecognizable, and their teeth missing. Now, the attack failed, but but, but, but but and this is a big but. Fidel became the embodiment of a force willing to give his life for the liberation from this regime. Fidel, as a qualified lawyer, took his own defense, building the case on the inherent right of a citizen. To rebel against an illegal government. I'm going to repeat that. Building the case on the inherent right of a citizen to rebel against an illegal government. In retrospect, it's kind of like Fidel's the pot and Batista's the kettle, right? His defense was not recorded. However, it was reconstructed and later distributed, becoming the manifesto of the revolution. I'm going to read to you an excerpt of his closing statement from his own defense delivered at his trial on October 1953. I know that imprisonment will be as hard for me as it has ever been for anyone, filled with cowardly threats and wicked torture. But I do not fear prison, just as I do not fear the fury of the miserable tyrant who snuffed the life out of 70 of my brothers. He then struck his hands on the table and said, Condemn me. It does not matter. History will absolve me. This left everybody in the room speechless. He then paused and said, okay, I'm done. Now, this nationalistic rhetoric, although quite heartwarming, he still got 15 years in prison. And it is believed that it was due to his father-in-law's intervention as Batista's minister that Fidel was not executed. While in jail, he wrote to a good friend saying, and I quote, What a terrific school prison is. Here I can shape my view of the world and perfect the meaning of my life. End quote. So prison provided an opportunity for extensive reading. He said he'd read 12 to 14 hours a day, Roosevelt, Lincoln, Napoleon, all the while keeping his rebellious sentiments alive and maintaining control of his rebel army, which he called the 26th of July movement in honor of the Moncada attack. He had a lover and he would write to both his wife and her. Then the jail censor mixed up, and perhaps intentionally, the letters to his wife and mistress, and his wife ended up divorcing him while he was in jail. They served almost two years and were released as a beneficiary of amnesty. Fidel was 29 years of age. Far from rehabilitated and fearing for their life, Fidel and his younger brother Raul went to Mexico City to reorganize and resume la revolución. He said, and I quote, We will return. When we can bring to our people the liberty and the right to live decently without despotism and without hunger, End quote. Shortly after arriving in Mexico, the Castros were introduced to a young, and if I may say very handsome, Argentinian physician named Ernesto Guevara, who was known as Che. After talking all night with Fidel, the next day he would join the embryonic revolutionary movement as the army's official doctor. Che recognized a common sympathy between them. Their plans and training had to be done in the face of constant interference by the Mexican police. At one time, Castro and his comrades found themselves in jail yet again, but this time only for three weeks, for the illegal possession of arms. The two main objectives while in Mexico were, one, train his expeditionary force, and two, raise the money for arms and a boat on which to get back to Cuba. Castro flew to the U.S. to raise money from sympathetic exiles in New York and in Miami, He gave speeches and outlined the program and people rich and poor alike contributed to the cause. A year and a half were to pass from the time that Fidel was emancipated in Havana until he and his guerrilla rebel army would be sailing across the Gulf of Mexico to resume the revolution and return to Cuba and set her free. This concludes episode four, the attack on the Moncada barracks or El Asalto al Cuartel Moncada. As always, may this have been enjoyably insightful. Until next time, take care. Cuidate. Ciao.